Good morning, everyone, again. Let's get your Bibles out this morning. We're going to go to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. We're in a sermon series called Why We Do. And uh, we've been here for a couple of weeks. We spent some time uh, in this passage. So I just want to remind you of the passage is our starting point, our launch point of where we'll be going uh, today. And this is Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 42. Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 42. Here we go. They devoted themselves to the apostles' preaching, teaching, and fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So if you've been with us on this journey over the last few weeks, we've been going through this sermon series called Why We Do. There's a lot of things that kind of go uh, behind uh, the surface of what happens here from week to week, what we believe in as a church that we want to be able to answer with this sermon series. Uh, If you remember the first week, we asked you to do this at the beginning of the message. Look to the person to the right and to the left of you and say, hi, you are a peculiar person. Now turn to the other person on the other side and say, you are also a peculiar person. So there's a number of things that we're going to talk about this morning that have to do with being a peculiar people. In 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, verse 9, we read that, that we are a peculiar people. And we're going to get into that a little bit more a little bit later. Why would Peter call us that? Why is he being so specific with that word and intentional about that? If you're a guest with us this morning, you're looking around the room and going saying, yeah, these are some peculiar people. If you're, if you're just kind of looking in at what the church does, and if you're, if you're an outsider looking in and you, you look at the things that people do, the music that people play, the songs that people sing, the what people do on Sunday mornings, what people do with their, uh, their breaks when they take vacation time, they're doing things with the church, they're taking vacation time to serve at a VBS, or they're taking vacation time to go on a mission trip. Why would we do those things? And that's what this sermon series is about. So we're going to bring it to a close today and kind of close things down, but I want to remind you of where we've been just over a couple of weeks here. First, we ask the question, why do we worship? If you've got that white sheet of paper inside of your bulletin, you can pull that out. You're going to track along with us this morning. You'll be able to follow along where I'm going with today's message and hopefully kind of put some pieces together here of the bigger picture. White sheet of paper, your first fill-in this morning is why do we worship is your fill-in. Why do we worship? If you remember that from the first week, we answered that question this way. Our souls will never be satisfied apart from worshiping God. I can't get no satisfaction. And I try and I try and I try. And many of you are here this morning. And you have been trying to find satisfaction somewhere else, doing something else. And you're going to find again and again and again that the only way to fill that void is through the worship of a holy God. This is what we were created to do. This is what we were created to be, is God-adoring people. And we try to fill it with all kinds of other things, with wealth, with success, with prosperity uh, of position and authority. And we find again and again and again that education isn't going to help, that status isn't going to help. Why? Because we were created 
to worship and glorify God. Secondly, last week we asked the question, why do we gather? As you're filling. Why do we gather? Home is where the heart is. Home is where, home is not a place, it's a people. And Brian shared a great story last week of he and his wife Molly standing in the backyard of a place that they hated living. They really didn't like living there and tears running down their face saying, but this is our backyard. When you leave that thing, it's not about the space. It's not about the parameters. There's something about it. It's home. And why do we gather? Because we, we, we're looking for that. And, and our home is here with other people who have a heart that actually beats in a similar fashion. But there's still this shadow, this reminder that this is not the end. This is not what it's all about. This is not my home, as the song used to say. I'm just a passing through. Treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue, right? That we're, we're looking forward to, that this is all an audition. This is all a, an idea of what it will look like someday when we're all gathered together in glory. And so that is why we gather. But this week we ask the question, why do we go? Why do we go? Long story short, the gospel requires movement. We're going to dig into that more today. But the gospel requires movement. There is no one in Scripture we see during Jesus' ministry or any of the apostles' ministry that could just cruise along when they were presented with the gospel. There was something that they must do. I was introduced to a book a couple of years ago and then reintroduced to a book and reminded you have got to pay attention to this book. You might start reading it by the elders here. It's a book by Bob Goff called Love Does. Anyone familiar with this book? All of you have the same assigned reading that I have, okay? Uh, As going through this book, so the reason I have the balloons here today. So Bob Goff is uh, a guy who gives out balloons constantly in every way and fashion you could possibly imagine. He's going to walk up to you in the grocery store, hand you a balloon, and walk away. Like that type of, he's that, and not just one balloon, thousands of balloons. And so uh, he, he really, the reason why he uses balloons, he says, love lifts us up so we can lift each other up. So he just walks around handing balloons to people. Love lifts us up. Here's some healing. Hopefully it makes your day better. Love does. Like there's an action step to that. Every time that you take this balloon, uh, you're going to find that there is this, this, you have to receive it. Like there is a doing that comes along with that. He and his family, I read about this, that he and his family decided that New Year's Day was the most boring day of the year. Anyone agree with that? I mean, if you're not a college football fan, it's just not really a big day. Now, those of you who are, it's a pretty big day. But we live in an NFL town, so let's just assume that all of us agree New Year's Day is not a big day. So he decided, he and his family wanted to take this day. How do we take this day and use it for God's glory? So he and his family decided what you and I would probably decide, that they would start a parade. Let's use this day to God's glory. Let's start a parade. And they went down all the street, knocked on doors, and told everybody, we're going to start a parade here on the street. Come on out. Let's go in the parade. But this parade's a little bit different. So they, they said, yeah, come out. Uh, and many people said, okay, the kids can walk in the parade and we'll clap for them. They said, no, 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 there's, there's actually no spectators in this parade. Everybody is in the parade. And so over time, uh, the first year, so there's just a few families that took him up on the offer, and he, Mr. Balloon Man, was handing out hundreds of thousands of balloons. If you came to the parade, you got a big handful of balloons, and you just walked down the street. 
And so each year, uh, this uh, parade, they, they invite there to be, uh, what do you call that, a grand marshal. They invited a grand marshal to come and be part of their parade. The very first year they did it, they invited their local mailman, because he had the day off, that he was the grand marshal of the parade. And so he walked down the street, down the center of the street, and apparently threw envelopes in the air as he was walking down the street. That's fun, right? And so every year they have a grand marshal that they select, and then they select a parade queen. And the parade queen is usually selected from the local retirement home, and she comes and she rides along, and then afterwards they encourage her if she's willing to, to give a speech at a brunch that follows the, uh, not Labor Day, the New Year's Day parade. Love does. There's something about it. Love lifts us up. That's his idea behind the balloons. Love lifts us up. And in that, we can lift each other up. Love does. Love takes action. In this book, this author, Bob Goff, writes his story of how he accepted Christ. And he accepted right. His salvation story goes something like this. He was about to drop out of high school because he decided it wasn't important. And so his, his big step that he was going to take was go, and he lived close enough. We don't live near there, but Yosemite National Park. He thought, I'm going to go there. I'm going to get a job there in Yosemite Valley, and I'll just work there, and it'll be fine. And I don't need school, and I'll be just fine. And so he decided to do that, and on his way out of town, he threw everything in, I think it was a VW or something like that, and he, he starts to drive out of town, and he decides there was this kind of quirky guy who was a youth pastor type that was around the school a lot. He was just going to let him know, hey, thanks for the time you gave me, and I'm going to go to Yosemite. See you later. And so in the process, he knocks on the door, and the guy comes to the door, kind of rubbing his eyes early Sunday morning, knocks on the door, and he comes to the door, and he says, I'm going to Yosemite. See you later. He says, "Um, hold on just a second. And he goes back in the house for a couple minutes, comes back out with a backpack and a sleeping bag. He says, let's go. I'm with you, Bob. Whatever you want to do, let's go do this. Love does. Love takes action. And long story short of that is they went to Yosemite. He couldn't get a job, couldn't figure it out, and over just two or three days decides to come back home. And wouldn't you know, when he comes back home to his house, uh, Bob thinks that the guy is single, but the reality is that it's not his girlfriend that's there at the house. They open up the door, he goes back in the house, and this youth pastor is there. His, his new bride comes because they have Chris, er, wedding presents all over the place. They had just gotten married. It may even have been the first night of their honeymoon. And he left and went with him because love does. And Bob's story was forever changed because this guy was willing to take the step out and say, I'm with you, Bob. Love does. You see, the gospel requires movement. The gospel requires taking a step, moving forward. Sometimes it's a giant leap. Other times it's just the tiniest thing. But it is a step. It is a movement. The gospel requires that we go. And that is why we go. So let's dig in there a little bit. Here's your next fill-in. Why do we go? There is work to be done. There's work to be done. We need to also keep in mind here, this passage that we've been looking at, Acts chapter 4, we're seeing the church grow, we're seeing the church thrive. We need to be able to see some of the backdrop of where this is happening. So in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we read this. Well, verse 6, they gathered around him, they asked him, Lord, where are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said, it's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his authority. 
But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid them from his sight. So Jesus is there. He's with his disciples. He's sharing with them what they were going to do. He has risen from the dead, and he's sitting on this mountaintop, and they're all gathering around and said, okay, is it time? Is it time for us to go? Is it time for us to take over the Roman rule is what they were really asking. And in that process, he says, you will go. And then he takes off. And that's what they're left with. Like the, the mindset that, of what's happening here, these first few pages of the book of Acts, Jesus, their leader, their Messiah, has just left them and, and said, you're going to go. And you're going to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the world. And then he's gone. Imagine if you are on a high school football team and your coach comes to you and tells you maybe he's sick or for some reason, even though he loves being your coach, he is going to have to leave and someone else is going to have to take over for the rest of the season. That kind of response, and maybe some of you have been through that, where there's an influential leader of some sort who's been in your life, and now he's stepping away or she is stepping away. They're going to need to go somewhere else, and now it's up to you. This is the situation that the disciples are left in. They feel vulnerable. They feel helpless. Today we look at what do the disciples do as they are told to go to the ends of the earth. We shouldn't miss also the grand story that's being told, the the story of how it all began. God created all things. He he spun the universe into motion, how it all went wrong. If you remember in the sermon series we did last year, how it all went wrong. Sin enters the picture. Genesis chapter 3, man falls. Everything kind of comes apart. And we read through the Old Testament of time and time again that they're trying to get themselves situated. And time and time again, man gets in the way of what they perceive God's plan is. And then we come into this season now where the disciples find themselves. This season now where the Messiah has come. They believe he is here. The guy that they've waited thousands of years for, these particular disciples. They've been waiting and waiting and waiting. And now... The moment they're looking up into the sky, looking up to heaven, he says, go, but wait. Wait a little bit longer. Wait just a minute. Wait wait a little bit more. Like, Like this is just, how many of you are bad at waiting? Like this is worse than waiting for the microwave to ding. This is worse than 4G. This is, this is bad. This is worse than dial-up internet, right? Like, like it's, they're, they're waiting. And he says, wait. And the Holy Spirit will come and give you the power to go. And the Holy Spirit shows up on the scene. See, some of you are waiting. It's like being on the top of a roller coaster, just about to go over, and you're just kind of in limbo. And some of you come here this morning, and you're in this waiting season. Some of you college students, maybe you're starting your senior year, and you've, you've been waiting, and, and now it seems like, man, there's just one more year of waiting before I can really do the thing that I want to do. Maybe you're engaged to be married, and you're just waiting until that date comes. Maybe you've got a new baby, and you're just waiting until you can see that baby sleep through the night. Whatever it is, there's this waiting that's in us, and we're just hungry for the next thing. And we're reminded there's work to be done, and I will give you the power to do it. And as the story goes, we see here in the first two chapters of Acts, the Holy Spirit comes on a day that we've begun, we call the day of Pentecost. And the Holy Spirit comes and moves tremendously. The waiting is over. 
The Holy Spirit is here, and God is at move, moving, and God is at work. This reminder that there is work to be done. When we look at really what they were up against, this small band of believers, their Messiah has left them. He says, now it's yours. It's up to you. We'll see you later. And, and, and what we know is the trappings and the, the formula and the organizational rhythms of all the things that you and I put together as church, even if you've got them mixed up and I've got them mixed up, all, like, all of those trappings didn't exist at all. And he says, just go do it. I'll give you the power of the Holy Spirit to make it happen. So in that, there are three Ps that we use here as a church. There is much work to be done. Presence, planting, and partnering are three things that we talk about here as a church. There are, there are neighborhoods that we have not spent time in. There are, are opportunities that are here in front of us for church planting. There are opportunities for sending missionaries overseas. Like the work is not done. In fact, it is barely started. Barely started. And so in this process, as uh, we would see Jesus saying this, I'm trying to remember off the top of my head, and I can't remember, very, very famous speech, but in that, the end of his, this is not the end of the beginning. This is not the beginning of the end. This is the end of the beginning. And so as we look forward to what God's work was going to be through the bride of his church, there is work to be done. Why do we go? Secondly, the journey will make you stronger. The journey will make you stronger. As the pages unfold of the book of Acts, if you're familiar with it, Peter and John, two of these disciples, they, they're walking into church one morning, and they see this lame man laying on the front steps. He's been there every week that they've walked into church. In this community in Jerusalem, this man has been there year after year, day after day, time after time. And they walk him up, and the man calls out to him, and they said, we don't have any silver or gold. We have no money. We've got nothing to offer you. And then Peter snaps in two, and he says, but in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And immediately, he says, his ankles and his feet were strengthened, and he jumps to his feet. And what did he do? He went walking and leaping and praising God. Wouldn't you do that if you had never been able to walk? And suddenly someone says, in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. He's doing laps around the church. We're not a Pentecostal church here, but if you've ever been to a church where there's those flag runners that go up and down the aisles, like that was this guy walking and leaping and waving a flag around, praising God. And then the next chapter, chapter 4. Will you turn to this? Acts chapter 4, verse 13. Acts chapter 4, verse 13. In that process, you might guess, there were some people who weren't really happy about the fact that this was going on. And Peter and John were called up in front of the religious leaders of the day. And they stood strong for what they had done. They stood strong. And verse 13, it says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. Now, again, get in your mindset here that, that we're going to read later in the book of Acts about all the times that these men were in prison. But this is the first example we have, that they heal someone in the name of Jesus Christ, that God works in a mighty way, and immediately they are thrown into prison, day one on the job thrown into prison. And those who did the task of it, they look at these men and they are astonished that they would have the boldness to do that, the ridiculous courage to do that. And they took note that these men had what? Been 
with Jesus. The journey makes you stronger. Verse 18, then they called them in again and commanded them, do not speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to listen to him? You be the judge. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. We cannot help. We are going to speak. It is going to come out from our mouths. We cannot stop because they just saw the guy get up and run around the building. How could you stop? And they marveled at that. But let's not forget who Peter and John are. The Apostle John, he's a young guy. He's, he's known in a lot of the Gospels as the guy who runs. He's a good runner. He was the first one to the tomb. He's the first, he, he, he's just running. He's a good swimmer. He's a good runner. He, he's doing all these things as fast as he can. He's a young man, right? But really what his main issue is, is an issue of entitlement. Do you remember James and John when they went before and they said, well, in some versions of it, they said, mommy went for, before them and said, which one of us gets to sit on the right hand of the Father when we get to heaven? And they're like, you're just a little kid, man. Who do you think you are? Okay, but do I get to sit there? You know, like, like the, he's missing the point. And this is what we know John to be, is this guy who who's always wants to be close, always wants to be right on top of the action when it comes to Jesus. He, he's always really close to the inner circle. But in that, in that being close to the inner circle meant that he isn't real excited about going out and getting injured or hurt. And so John, and as we've talked about already, the Apostle Peter, he's got some scars. He's a fisherman. He's, he's kind of a quirky guy. He, he's, he's always getting himself into trouble. And one of the deepest emotional scars is him turning his back on the Messiah at his time of need. This is James, excuse me, this is John and Peter. And now they're the ones standing in front of the council. They're the ones standing there boldly and courageously proclaiming the gospel. The journey will make you stronger. The small steps that you take will make you stronger. Putting your lawn furniture in the front yard instead of the backyard and having conversations because of it will make you stronger. Serving at a soup kitchen will make you stronger. We served with our youth group at a former church, and they did something called the 30-hour famine. For 30 hours, they didn't eat anything. They did drink water, but they didn't eat anything so that they would have an idea of what the people in their neighborhood were going through. And so in that process, they raised funds for uh, children overseas and different things like that. But at the end of the day, after serving in the soup kitchen, they saw this woman come and get her dinner. And when she came and got her dinner... I was there watching when this woman came forward. She had one plate that she ate of, and then she asked for permission to take a second plate of spaghetti and meatballs, and she just dumped the second plate into a shopping bag. And so that night and for years to follow, every year that we did this 30-hour famine, the grand meal after 30 hours that these students had worked and they had served their community and served them well, their dinner, their grand dinner was served in a shopping bag, spaghetti, you got a fork and a shopping bag, spaghetti and meatballs in the bag. Why? Because knowing and seeing that and going through that makes you stronger. That journey makes you stronger. Brian has shared his story here a number of times. I've been part of that too. Planting a church and it not going well or planting a church and having it fail 
will make you stronger. Ministry-wise, there are some things that Brian has gone through that no other uh, seminary training could ever put you through. And knowing that and believing that and understanding that that journey makes you stronger means that we continue to go. Going on a mission trip, serving, will make you stronger. Leaving the safety of what's happening right here. Going on a mission trip, and it doesn't have to be a 1,000 or 10,000 miles away. It can be downtown to UCM's ministries and be able to serve there in that capacity. Uh, That's something we do on a regular basis, and we'd love to have you go and do that. Why? Because the journey will make you stronger. You will do things and be able to go places that you've never gone before, and it will make you stronger. I know that the uh, campus ambassadors are going on a mission trip to Nicaragua, and they would love to be able to take you with them. The journey will make you stronger. Seems like every mission trip that I've been on, we get to the place, and once it was in Romania, another time in Croatia, and uh, even on a time with disaster relief. It seems like that you get into this location, you get into this place, and they hear the, the term, oh, you work at a church, preach. And at the time, the first time, I, I literally had been employed by the church for like a weekend, and I went on their first mission trip like that weekend. I played guitar in the band, and that was about, that was it. And they said, you're going to preach the sermon Sunday. <laughs> and so I, and there was the interpreter, and I talked too fast. And so the interpreter afterwards, she said, I think, I just, I knew kind of what you were talking about, so I preached the sermon for you, basically. <laughs> The journey will make you stronger. I hope it was a good sermon. I really have no idea. Because I don't think what I had in my notes was very good. Just like weight training or strength training, it's the continuing process of doing that little bit more that you're uncomfortable with. That is why we go. The journey will make you stronger. Why do we go? Because you can't stay here. You can't stay here. In Acts chapter 2, we see Pentecost. 3,000 were saved. 3,000 were added to their numbers that day. In Acts chapter 4, as we are reading here, we see in chapter 3 and chapter 4 that the lame are walking. Those are being healed. The apostles are preaching. They've stood before. They've endured uh, what they have of being thrown in jail. And when they come back out, there's even more people accept the Christ. 2,000 people more are saved. In Acts chapter 5, we see this kind of gathering that starts to happen. When people start coming in in Solomon's colonnade or, or, or Solomon's porch, where they're, just, they're gathering and they're just enjoying one another's company. They're coming in and saying, we, we love this here. Like, this is good. God is at, at, at moving. And there are thousands being saved. And it says that even the apostle Peter was so anointed by the Holy Spirit that people would come and lay the injured and wounded, and he would walk by, and if his shadow touched them, then they would be healed. This was the type of movement that was happening. The Holy Spirit was just in a very, very tangible way moving at that time. And during all of that, you know that they were saying, let's just keep doing this. Bring your tithes and offerings here. Let's stay here. Acts chapter 6, they choose deacons because they say there's so much activity. We need to begin. The first, there were seven deacons, and then they added more and more. And, and one of these rising stars, if you will, in this church movement was this guy named Stephen. And if you know the Gospels, and if you know the story here in Acts, what happens? Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of their killing him. 
backstory, Stephen becomes a martyr for the movement. Stephen gives his life for the movement. And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were what? They were scattered throughout Judea, Samaria, and we'll continue to read the uttermost parts of the earth. Just like Jesus said when he was taken up into the clouds, he said, you will be my, what? My missionaries to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And now we're in chapter 8, verse 1, and where do we see him going? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and children and put them into prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. We can't stay here. We can't stay here. They tried to stay in Jerusalem. They were content to stay in Jerusalem. They could not stay here. Historically, if you read extra biblical materials, you see that the history of what happens is in AD 66 that there's a revolt. The Jews try to revolt against the Roman government. And over three or four years, it comes to a climax in, in the year 70. And in the year 70, it all comes tumbling down. The temple that had been built under Herod, the king's rule, is torn to the ground. And during that season, about 1.1 million Jews and Christians are killed. 1.1 Jews and Christians are killed. And guess who the finger is pointed at through the whole process? You Christians. You Christians. You Christians. Friends, we can't stay here. We can't stay here. They had the illusion that this, this movement that they were seeing, that they could just kind of box it all up and enjoy it. And Jesus had told them, you can't stay here. And through this process, they, they clearly could not stay here. It was going to all come apart. And if we think for a minute that we will always be able to worship in this space, that this building will always be in great repair, that this location here in Williamsville, New York, will always be the space that you and I gather and worship, it's just not going to be the case. And if we think that our neighborhoods are fine just the way that they are, understand that time moves forward and time moves on and our neighborhoods are falling, we need to understand that your street, the only person is a missionary on your street is you. And you cannot stay indoors anymore. As the song used to say, you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. Friends, churches are closing. Missionaries are coming back off of the mission field because they are underfunded. We cannot stay here. Church, we cannot stay at status quo. We have to be moving forward. Why? Because the gospel requires that we move. We can't stay here. So your next feeling is this. Send us out. Send us out. We will go. Send us out. We will go. Even as I say that, some of you have visions of Africa and thatch huts. That's okay. Some of you need to go to Africa and live in a thatch hut. But send us out, we will go, is an understanding that everything that we do drives us forward. The gospel compels us forward. We cannot stay still. We cannot stay here. This is not going to work. 
The Jews thought this was going to work. The new Christians, they thought this was going to work. And they look back and their temple is burned to the ground. And 1.1 million of them are gone. They couldn't stay there. And we can't stay here either. I'll bring you into the family argument, if you will. My parents were both born in 1961. And during this early uh, formative time of their life was the, the, the space endeavors. And some of you lived through all of this. And, and putting a man on the moon. And I'd watched one too many documentaries. And I said something about the fact that it was all a hoax and it was all made up. And like, yeah, they just had a film crew and set it all up. And my mom went nuts. And maybe you would too. And she was like, I was there. I saw it with my own eyes. It's like, mom, you saw the TV with your own eyes. How do you know? You weren't there. This whole like battle went back and forth. And eventually there's a show on Discovery, Mythbusters. They can prove, okay, we did go to the moon. Okay, mom, I guess you were right. But the damage had already been, like the, the big battle went on back and forth. But if you lived during that time period, which I did not, the Soviet Union put a man into space in 1961, the year that my parents were both born. At this time, the U.S. had only sent into space unmanned orbiting vehicles and a couple of chimpanzees. And we were pretty proud of ourselves. I, listen, I'm proud of that. I, I can't do that. Can you do that? There's probably a rocket scientist in here or something. I can do that. No. I have no idea how to do that. Mercury 7 astronaut Alan Shepard became the first man who went into space one month after the Soviet Union did it. Between 1961 and 64, the budget of the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, NASA, increased by 500%. NASA workforce included 34,000 full-time employees and 375,000 contractors and contracts that they were working at during those four years. In 1962, John Glenn was the first astronaut who orbited the Earth. Later in his life, after a number of missions, after a number of uh, times, he ran for Senate and eventually became confirmed and was in Senate for 24 years. At the age of 77, in 1998, he was able to return to space. While he returned to space on the Discovery space shuttle. He's the oldest crew member to fly into space with NASA and the only person to orbit with both the Mercury and Discovery missions. Glenn later died, as many of you know, in 2016 the age of 95. But here's what NPR attributed him to say. Here we go. Uh, an astronaut, a senator, a national hero. That's how we are remembering John Glenn today. He died yesterday at the age of 95. If John Glenn had ever left, excuse me, if John Glenn had never left his hometown of New Concord, Ohio, he'd likely still be extraordinary, just on a smaller stage. But because he left, we all got to soar a little higher. Isn't that a great tribute for that? As you think about NASA and the vastness of its mission of, hey, we're going out into space. We're going out there where no one's ever been before. We have no idea what we're getting into. And, and the, the amount of manpower that it takes to make all of that happening, you feel like you can connect to something bigger, larger than you. Realize that the mission that we have before us is God's mission. It is the local church, and it is far larger than NASA could ever be. And with this, the resource of thousands of millions that had to be involved to get John Glenn off the ground, he could have never done it without them. God's mission is the greatest sending operation in history. Sending well is the hands-on endeavor of all of us, of you 
and me. Send us out. We will go. The local church, Randall Church, is the launch pad. We celebrate our time and resources going out. We have to be a church that knows and understands that we have been called to. This is the mission for us is to go out of our doors, to get out of this building, to, to resource those who are going out and take steps, whatever they might be, to go out. Why? Because the gospel requires movement. Both John and Peter write. John writes the gospels. He writes a few letters. Peter writes few letters, and we get kind of their perspective on what they've gone through. In the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 20, we, we have uh, the disciples are all gathered together in, in, in a room. They're hiding, and suddenly Jesus walks through the wall and appears there in their midst, and he shows them his hands in his side. Uh, chapter 20, verse 20, it says, after this, he showed them his hands in his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they see the Lord. And again, Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. And he tells John this, and I assume that John never forgot this. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Send us out. We will go. Peter's rendition of it in 1 Peter chapter 2, we get his rendition of really kind of the thesis statement of what he is about. He says in verse 9, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a what? Peculiar people. So that you should show forth the praises of him who had called you out of darkness and sent you out into marvelous light. Peter never forgot that. He got, he got pulled out from darkness, and he was being sent forward. He is going out into marvelous light because of what God has done in his life. Because he knew the Messiah, his life was forever changed. Because the gospel requires movement. Send us out, we will go. As we have gone through this sermon series, maybe you picked up on it. We've been asking the questions, why do we worship? Why do we gather? Why do we go? But actually, the sermon series title is, Why We Do. Why We Do. So if these balloons can be a reminder of you actually doing something, maybe it would be more accurate to say, why we do worship. The action of worship. Why we do that. We come in each week and we do that. Why? Because we are discovering what it means to have faith in Christ. Each time we're looking around, we are, we, we, we're working through some of our stuff, but understanding what it is, we, we're discovering what it looks like for us to give God the greatest glory we know how possibly to do. And we worship him in that. Why we do gathering why do we gather? Why do we do this? Why? Because we nurture the hope that comes when we meet together as a church. There should be a day, and we pray for a day, that the church doesn't have the wounds that it has, the blemishes that it has. Our friends in the Catholic churches in this area are going through some things right now. You understand that. The church is wounded and damaged, but this is the bride of Christ. And so we gather because we nurture the hope that comes when we gather. The hope that we find in the church. Not just hope in an idea or a concept, but no, concrete evidence. This is what the church was meant to be. And why do we do going? Why do we call them a go team? Why do we really think through outward focus? It's upward, inward, outward. Why are we doing that? Why? Because it awakens something inside of us. 
I would love for you to be able to see your neighborhoods, see your school districts, to see your government, community governments, see all of those things with the idea of like this, there's a, there's a love inside of me that I have to do something for these people. I have to do something that I'm compelled to go. I can't, I can't stay here anymore. I have to interact. I have to engage. I have to be a part. Because the love wakens something in us that wasn't there before in our community. There's an author, Bob Roberts, that calls this process glocalization. Just looking out and seeing a mission field, whether you're local, whether you're global, there's glocalization. Why? Because when at the bottom line, we send missionaries overseas, yes. But there are no closed doors when someone is thinking globally. A lot of times when we send someone to the mission field, they have to go and they have to learn a language. Or they have to go and they have to learn a trade. They have to go and find a way to employ themselves in this foreign land. And the reality is there are times that they are doing that under the guise of, they can't use the term missionary. They can't use the term that they are doing a Bible study or anything like that. They're trying to learn these other tools so that they can be there. What would it look like if actually doctors were going to mission fields because they're a doctor who knows the gospel and is going to share the gospel because they're a doctor? What would it look like if a plumber is going to a foreign mission field? Why? Because he's a plumber and he can do plumbing and we need plumbers on the mission field and he's able to share the gospel when he does it. What does it look like when educators, teachers, contractors understand the scope of the mission that's in front of us? When we do that, we are in the process of saying, send me out, I will go. I've got in your outline this morning just these simple words. It's a, words from a song by a guy named Steve Fee saying this, I want to be your hands and feet. I want to be your voice every time I speak. I want to run to the ones in need in the name of Jesus. There's a reason why when people are baptized here as a church, we do as often as we can. We try to have a video that tells their grace story. That allows you to see where they came from, why. Because it's a process of, of us teaching and reminding ourselves and encouraging one another that, that we cannot stay still. We must go to the world and share the story of what God is doing. When we eat annually, when we look at our, our budget and we talk about how we spend our dollars here, we want to encourage you that we are prioritizing our budget here to be sending. And we're encouraging you to take your finances in your home and be organizing things of your time, your talent, your treasure. Organize things in a way that empowers you to be a going people. The gospel requires movement. So this morning is a first step of movement, if you will. We have a time of communion. If the communion attendees, if you'll come and help this morning. On the table, there's a sheet over it right now, but it says, it literally says, this do in remembrance of me. There's no greater love than doing something like what God himself sent his son Jesus to die for us. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave. He did something about the problem that was in front of him and gave his son Jesus. This do in remembrance of me. And in the Gospels and in Acts, we, we see this character, Saul, who is persecuting Christians. And then later, if you know the story, he becomes Paul. Because something changed in him. And so we read his words when he says, what I've learned about communion is this. This do in remembrance of me. See, the Lord's Supper or the time of communion is more than just sipping juice, 
eating a wafer. It's important because it's a simple act. It's a simple act, but it reminds us of what is going on behind it. Whenever we have the time of the Lord's Supper, and we do it monthly here and a little bit more often than that, in doing that is a reminder to you and a reminder to me what Jesus did. Love does what he did and is continuing to do in you and in me.